Welcome to Jokerman, podcasts about Bob Dylan and also occasionally about other artists, such as today, uh, in the second part of our non-Bob favorites uh, week, Evan obviously kicked this off with a bang with Van Morrison's latest record project, Volume 1, a real humdinger of a record. Uh, And today we are switching gears to my kind of side of things. Um, and, uh, focusing on a record that isn't quite as, uh, well, I guess I was going to say isn't quite as provocative, but maybe in some cases it is as provocative, if not more so, uh, even though it isn't pissing people off quite as much as, uh, Van's latest, uh, the record two against nature, Steely Dan's great 2000 comeback record, uh, as is Jokerman's kind of uh, want here. Ian, I have to stop you there. We're not Jokerman on this episode. Excuse me. We are Joker Dan. Ah. Thank you. Of course. Uh, And that voice that you just heard actually is our fantastic guest who has agreed to sit in and chop it up about the Dan with us. You might know him by his Twitter handle, at BadDanTakes, but today we'll just call him Alex here on the show. Alex, thanks for sitting in. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's uh, it's a real honor to, uh, to be here. Absolutely. It's the, the pleasure and honor is all ours. Uh, Evan is here also. Yes. I mean, that is really the truest statement because I am not the resident like Dan man, although uh, I have become much more of a, a Dan fan man in the last six <laughs> months, I would say, than any other time in my life. Thanks to my friendship with Ian. And thanks to uh, the Bad Dan Takes Twitter, which I think is a great gateway drug for a lot of uh, people who are getting their first taste of that sweet, sweet music. It really is, uh, uh, you know, one of the best uh, Twitter accounts to follow. I'm sure everyone uh, who listens to this show is probably well aware of it by now. But if you aren't, go uh, go take a look. Um, wh- wh- what? How did how did you even get the idea for that, Alex? Well. Um... I actually started it as Bad Steely Dan Takes. Um, I I really did not have any uh, plans to do anything with it. It was really just supposed to be a satire of other Bad Takes accounts. Like, um, (laughs) I think there's a Bad Film Takes. Um, Sure. I I don't like those accounts. I should just put for the record, it was purely started as a a joke that I expected to to give up on, uh, you know, after a few tweets. Very shortly. Um, And I did a few, but um, when uh, the pandemic started, um, I guess it was out of sheer boredom. I I just changed the handle to, uh, to good Steely Dan takes. And (laughs) I posted, you know, one every, uh, every few days and, you know, the ball just started like it got rolling and I just kind of like kept going with it. You know, it's fascinating to me that uh, just by changing your mind to become positive, putting positive energy into the world (laughs) versus good versus bad, I think that that probably helped to uh, spur people on and the interest to grow because uh, there are many good Dan takes, as we found, to be had in the world. Thanks to your page and your Twitter, there's a lot of great insight just organically springing up in the world around this group? You know, there is, and, and I didn't want to, um, you know, spend uh, a lot of time just kind of, uh, you know, shaming people for their bad opinions about Steely Dan. I'd rather, you know, celebrate people's, you know, love and, and joy uh, around the around the band because, um, 
you know, I share that love and I share that joy. So to, to take that and put it out in the world, um, you know, it's, it's, it gives me a lot of pleasure and, um, I guess that's why I kept at it. And, uh, here we are, I'm still doing it. It's been over a year. So, um, it, it has not, Congratulations. Maybe, maybe I'm beating it into the ground at this point, but, uh, uh, you know, I just can't help, but, you know, continue to, to spread that love. So keep it going. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's not just the like takes of people on Twitter. You've also, uh, th- there are numerous delightful clips of, uh, Don, for instance, uh, that you will post as well, just like completely hamming it up on stage. It's, uh, it's like the perfect kind of thing to pop in in the timeline, especially now when, you know, things are, I guess COVID's ending ish. So that's good. But, other things in the geopolitical world are maybe not going so well. It's just nice to see some. Are you trying some, to make this about Israel somehow? <laughs> yeah, we, we've we've done the Israel conversation already. Yeah, it's just nice to see some good, wholesome uh, things that make you smile pop up on the timeline in the midst of all of the absolute just heinous bullshit that is flooding through on a daily basis. So thank you for uh, for doing a service for uh, for all of us here. The record that we're talking about today, uh, just to sort of get into that is um maybe uh, maybe because of my lack of seasoning uh, as a, a Dan professional um, and Dan connoisseur, I can maybe actually be of service here because to me um, in my fresh virginal ears, uh, this is a record two against nature that um it's it's a it's a weird experience just like uh, to to listen to it having also like simultaneously just becoming pretty acquainted, like well acquainted for the first time with the mainstays of the catalog. Yeah, I guess it must be kind of weird to be listening to this alongside like Katie lied and <laughs> kid Charlemagne and shit. Exactly. Like I'm, I'm sort of sampling this vast platter of Dan and um, in some ways two against nature is very similar to the other records. Um, I don't know. In the the ways in which it's different are kind of hard to pin down. It's uh it is yeah, I think it's clearly sort of a uh, a continuation of what they were moving into uh obviously in the last couple records. Um and even like the Nightfly uh to a degree. Um uh, but it's also kind of different as you would expect for a record that was what? Like Gaucho was 80, right? And this was 2000, so it was two decades between between the two. Um yeah, I mean, it's uh, there. There are through lines, but then there are also some major kind of uh, digressions. I think, or like evolutions, maybe would be a good way to put it. What are some of your uh, What are some of your early faves? And just, I'm curious, Evan, as you're as you're dipping your toes into the catalog. I've spent a good amount of time listening to Gaucho just all the way through. I was like running a lot listening to Gaucho, which it turns out is a great uh, idea. <laughs> um, <laughs> And uh, as well, also Asia is great, uh, of course. Um, Bad Sneakers might be just like my favorite song. Period. It's a song Beautiful that song. I song. could I can listen to it like nine times in a row and just like not get sick of it because the way it's structured, you, it kind of it, it suit it's suited well for just like endlessly repeating when because it's always just so so fun when that chorus comes in. Mm. Um, so that that's definitely a big hit, and and like Bodhisattva on Count, uh, Countdown to Ecstasy is that the one? Yep. Yes. Bodhisattva. Yeah, that's crazy. It's insane. <laughs> and some of those live cuts of Bodhisattva also are just they absolutely. Just, it's batshit. just on fire. Um, 
Alex, what was like your first Dan uh, moment? Like what was your come to Dan? Come to Dawn moment. <laughs> well, that's a, that's an excellent question. So, um, I mean, my, I grew up listening to a lot of uh, classic rock radio. Um, it's just, you know, when I was in the car, just driving around, that was right. just kind of my default. Um, but honestly, I was not a huge, uh, a huge Steely Dan fan at that time. I, they, I knew the, the, you know, three or four songs that they would play, but I kind of shrugged them off. I didn't, you know, I didn't hear reeling in the years and go, Oh my God, I have to, you know, go buy the entire discography. No, I never had that kind of uh moment. It was well after it was when I was, let's see, it was around, um, I think it was 2010. I heard Babylon sisters at a bar mm. and was just like, what? And like, what is this music? What, what the fuck is going yeah, on? Yeah, this is incredible. I actually thought it was a Frank Zappa song at first. <laughs> Are you Zappa fan? Uh, yeah, I am actually a Zappa fan. Um, some some uh, eras more than others, but um, I'm not uh, a hater like like so many today. I, I actually am one of those people. <laughs> I do actually hate Frank Zappa, but I don't hate Seely Dan, even though they have some superficial similarities at times. Right. I, I think I heard some of like I heard the uh, the way the backup singers, the way they sing Babylon Sisters Shake It. Mm. It has that mm. sort of like ironic, uh, you know, distance to it and, and just sort of a, a sort of smirking tone. So um, but anyway, yeah, I, I tracked it down and I, I found out it was Steely Dan and I was completely blown away. Um and just, uh, I think I got Asia and Gaucho at the same time. And yeah, from there, it just became like an obsession. Great double feature of records. Those two are just blockbusters. It's really like two sides, like the light side and the dark side of the same, just like completely fucked up, uh, you know. Uh, <laughs> Which side is the dark psychosis. side? <laughs> Gaucho is clearly a dark side. Yeah, I would have to agree with that. I wonder, Alex, are you, I, I suspect I know the answer, uh, and I, I think it'll probably be the same one that I give, but like my, fa- my father's a big Dan guy also. Mm-hmm. His name is actually Dan. Um, but he grew up. <laughs> Quite literally. Literally, <laughs> literally yeah. Um, he grew up, you know, kind of, uh, you know, in the punk scene, um, uh, you know, late 70s, early mm-hmm. 80s kind of thing. Um, and he had like a roommate um, who was really into like prog rock, like Yes and, and Rush and stuff like that. And so they kind of butted heads a lot on music, but Steely Dan was like the one thing that they could kind of agree on, uh, the punks and the progs. Um, but he, my father maintains that, uh, they, they kind of peaked with pretzel logic and then everything thereafter kind of on a downward slope. Whereas in my read on things, it was a straight ascent right through Gaucho. Uh, and it just kept getting better. I wonder if you are an early, you know, early phase Dan guy or a later days Dan guy. Well, I mean, I, I celebrate the entire catalog, you know, straight through from can't buy a thrill all the way through, uh, even everything must go. Um, having said that, is there an era I prefer? Absolutely. I, I love, um, the, uh, the post, uh, touring, uh, era of Dan. So starting with Katie lied through Gaucho is to me, the, 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 uh, the peak and, and with each album of, of like getting six, you know, better in succession. So I, I think, I'd probably say Gaucho is my favorite. Um, but I, you know, depending on my mood, I can, you know, Asia and Royal Scam are, are right there. Um, and even Katie Light, I, I absolutely love. So yeah, I would, I would have to agree with you. I, I think they actually got, you know, significantly better. Although I love, I love those first three as well. So 
Yeah, the first three, I mean, you know, they, they, they are just packed uh, uh, like end to end with nothing but hits. Like the whole first side of Pretzel Logic is just like immac- just like perfect. Um, but yeah, it's just something about like the, 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 the more insane kind of lyrical directions they went. And then obviously just the completely blown out odysseys that started on Asia um, just really... I think people our age, like in this era, like really appreciate a, like Asia, gaucho, later stuff, uh, more so than the early stuff. Whereas in the past, that might've been a little more um, of a, a conflict, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's crazy because uh, I had actually never heard any of the songs post pretzel logic until like I had this epiphany, like the only right. songs that I remember playing on, um, you know, Q104.3, which is, you know, the, the New York lo- local classic rock station, um, I remember them playing Reeling in the Years, Do It Again, and uh, Ricky. Sure. But I, I don't think three I songs ever- that are just ubiquitous. That like even as a a, a novice Dan uh, aficionado, like I I knew and they're great. You know, they're like mainstays of just rock radio that like I think everybody kind of likes. Right, just a great way to start off their whole career. Yeah, I mean they're great was- songs, but like I I didn't. You know, I didn't know about this whole other, you know, era, the, the Asia. It the goes much show. deeper. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, they fit they fit into the like classic rock radio template alongside, you know, Eagles and um, uh, whoever else. I don't know, Zeppelin, um, much more so than like, um, you know, um, like uh, Deacon Blues or something. Yeah, I think like those three songs probably got you know, picked because they have like great guitar solos. So, right. I guess know. Peg belongs in there, but that's sort of an outlier from the, the last couple records anyways. See, I figure Peg is a little too on the pop end of the spectrum for, for Q104. Like it's a little bit more, uh, I see. It's almost like an earth, wind and fire song where it has this sort of bounce to it. And it's, it's more right. like rhythm and blues. So, um, although Michael. It, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, Michael McDonald. Yeah. On the background. <laughs> Yeah, um, but it has a fantastic guitar solo too. So you know, I'm not sure how these decisions are made, which songs make it into the you know the classic rock radio pantheon or whatever. But um, yeah, it's unfortunate that I, I you know took until you know ten years ago. I never heard a single Celia Dan song recorded after 1974. It is fortunate though. You, you get to have <laughs> like a whole new uh, appreciation for it in your in, in later in life. You know, it's it's not like something you knew from from babyhood you it, it is nice to discover bands like as you get older and i think that that's they're one of those that i think it, you know what you are doing on on the twitter um is actually a, a noble thing just as what we do on this podcast is very noble actually <laughs> it's, it's, that's ve- that's very humble of you to it's say. um <laughs> it's actually one of the you know it's it's brave frankly and it's it's a good it's a public good to help people um, and encourage people to discover uh, a great band, make it their own, and create uh, create memories. All right. Well, uh, on that note, maybe let's uh, let's take a dive into Two Against Nature, uh, Steely Dan's version uh, of um, what Bob analog is this? Um, this would be their their Love and Theft, I guess. Love and theft. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Uh, there you go. Are you, are you also theft. drinking white wine, Alex? I am. Yeah. Is that all right? 
Yeah, no, I'm drinking a white oh, wine as well. Perfect. Yeah. Just what uh, about you? Seem to fit. I'm drinking uh, water <laughs> because it's 1 p.m. on the West Coast. Well, it it feels only fitting to um, instead of blowing the harmonica, maybe we can just clink our glasses of white wine and right. uh, start listening to uh, Two Against Nature. Two Against Nature. There you go. Um, <laughs> Gaslighting Abbey. What a cool song. I have a question. Yes. Is this the term gaslighting that we know from from online? I actually have also had that question myself and I I think the answer must be no, but I don't know for certain. Alex, you're the you're the 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 scholar here. Do you have any insight? I mean, I I think there are uh multiple interpretations actually. I think some people think it's a reference to, you know, the word gaslighting as we've come to know it. Uh, in the, you know, in the parlance of like modern discourse or whatever you want to call it. Um, yeah. But then there's the, the literal interpretation as well, which is that, you know, they are literally gaslighting Abby. I, I think that can be, that can be uh, seen as an interpretation as well. I don't really know how else to uh, take it. Yeah. No, I guess that's, that's maybe the right uh, read there. I've got, I've got our friends at genius.com uh, mm-hmm. up on my end here. Um, the number one contributor claims a man who is cheating while on summer holiday plots with his mm. new flame to ditch his current partner, Abby. The two make a game of, quote, gaslighting her, making her think she's going insane. So I guess there it is. The term is taken from the Patrick Hamilton play, Gaslight, where yeah, right, one character right. seeks to drive his wife mad by clandestinely dimming the apartment's gas lights but pretending nothing has changed. Oh, so it's actually... That actually... About, actually about dimming the lights until... She's like, why is it dark in here? I guess so. Um, cool. Okay, I like it even more now uh, that we've. That this we've is this is an that. evil song. This is one <laughs> of those Dan songs that's like evil, and from the point of view of someone who's evil, it seems it's got uh, this very spooky kind of unsettling melody. Actually, uh-huh. to, in my opinion, uh, I don't know if you both feel that way, but like, there's something kind of unsettling about it. Yeah, as an album opener, uh, particularly, it's it's such a like left curve or, or um, you know curveball, left turn, whatever. Uh, it's like it's not what you expect to uh, to kick off the record, especially uh, a think. reunion album. It's like yeah. we're back, and it's just like you're in the middle of this like weird psychic warfare between these like presumably like middle aged people like fucking each other on the beach. <laughs> I, I feel like that's part of the uh, the appeal for um, you know Don and Walt is they, their their big first uh, song off the comeback record is you know a dark and disturbing tale of you know uh, a man having an affair and you know gaslighting their his wife um, filled with all kinds of you know unsettling uh, imagery. As, as I say yeah. it, um, it actually seems like of course it's like this. Um. <laughs> There, the, I think that's kind of the uh, that's one of the like through lines that we have on this record from the previous ones, as well as something that's kind of like like they pushed it even further than they have in the past is like just the absolutely debased kind of sexual morality on half the songs on this album. Um, like you got that, you know, you got that occasionally on uh, on some of the you know original classic shit obviously you know hey 19 is about being a cool guy and having sex with a 19 year old um but um in the on this record in particular 
with Gaslighting Abbey and a couple others that we'll get to, like, it's really just like, like we're one step away from like, like actual, like sex offender registry type type guys. Uh, but it's so, you got, you just, you got to snap your fingers and smile and tap your toes. It's so fucking infectious. Yeah. I mean, I think on uh, Gaucho is where they started. Um, you know, there was kind of this disconnect between, you know, the smoothness or the, you know, the sort of yacht rock sound of the, the actual music, but like the lyrics were going in an increasingly darker, you know, direction. And then, you know, when they're doing this reunion record, they could have, you know, gone in a lot of different directions, but they kind of picked up that thread. And, um, you know, again, this is like such a bouncy, upbeat song, you know, sonically, but like when you actually stop to, you know, try and read what's like, what what's going on with the lyrics, it's, um, it's only like one of the most disturbing songs they've written. It's um, got <laughs> one of those um, classic Steely Dan, like, creepy word choices in it where he, he says it's a luscious invention for three, (laughs) which is just such a, like a gross way to put anything, but especially like whatever they're talking about. Um, It's funny just to think about like the the vibe that this song conjures for me is just like very weird. Um, It's, it's just like rich people. Like, I don't know. They live in like, in the, it, where do you think the, this takes place? Like, this seems like it, it's happening in East Hampton to me. Yeah, like I thought the exact same in, thing. Yeah, like they live Long in Island. Long Island. Definitely. Yeah, and they're and they're like they've got this long weekend coming up. They're it it's I imagine sort of like a the narrator's know, like a Patrick Bateman kind of character. Past his prime, sort of like a bloating, uh, very tanned guy. I don't know. Yeah, yeah I, no, I feel I like it has to be the East Coast because of the uh, the uh, and it's barely July if we keep on bopping until Labor Day like that demarcation of like what the summertime is just feels like a sort of East Coast. It is vibe, you know, right. Uh, it is a very East like summer, almost European by the in sea. that like you're yeah. yeah, you're on this like this very like um, isolated summer holiday. And right. Then until and then when it ends, it ends and then you're out of it instead of yeah the eternal summer of the chill ass West coast, uh, spiking herb tea with Dilaudid also, uh, even though Don pronounces it diluted for some reason. <laughs> well, I think that that's probably intentional. A lot of the wordplay and like literary aspects of their music are very like weird and idiosyncratic. It seems like that seems like something that they would do on purpose is like, um, use, use that because it sounds like diluted, um, as sort of like a, like meta, commentary on the characters they're doing in this song there you go isn't is that not like the kind of headspace no, that's exactly, that, they're in? that is exactly the kind of thing that they would do and, and that's what sets them apart from like someone else who like on paper is very similar which is like billy joel like if you told somebody about what steely dan <laughs> is like and then you explained what scenes from an italian restaurant is <laughs> how that goes <laughs> like it wouldn't necessarily sound so different but there's an attitude that's like pretty subtle, but is it makes those story songs like it's it's not the same somehow. Yeah. These are very different stories and very different characters <laughs> than you encounter than you encounter in the world of Billy Joel. Although I suppose Billy Joel uh, gets pretty close to that in um, "Only the Good Die Young," where he's like trying to seduce a, a school Catholic schoolgirl. Well. 
Just uh, just wait until we get uh, until we get a little further on here before making too many comparisons. <laughs> right. Um, Gaslight Abbey, great song, great way to start a great record after two decades gone. Um, what a shame about me. I actually think this is one of the more uh, straightforward uh, songs on the album. Like it's just kind yeah. of like straight storytelling. There's uh, you know less of the sort of cryptic uh, kind of lyrical approach. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's great. This is like the things I miss the most, but of this record kind of the, their follow-up to this has that song, which is, yeah, very straightforward. Um, if I'm, am I correct that this song is kind of about like meeting up with an old flame and it being kind of like awkward and depressing? Oh, it's a guy who's sort of like a loser, uh, middle age burnout who works at the strand, uh, and went to NYU with this old flame who turned into a hotshot Hollywood actress. And she walks in and sees him and they're in very different stages in their lives. Uh, and you know, yeah, they have kind of an awkward conversation and then she ends up suggesting they go back to, uh, they go back to her place, but he, uh, he's, uh, he's, he, he doesn't, he doesn't feel it. She's talking to a ghost, uh, and he's just kind of lamenting he's the fact the ghost? that he's, he's the ghost. He's, uh, yeah. you know, he's a, um, uh, I, well, I would say fail son, but he's clearly like a middle-aged kind of guy, a fail, not father, just a fail, a fail guy. Failed dude. Gentleman loser, if you will. I mean, yes. You know, I, I, I like this one also because it kind of has a happy ending. Like he spends the whole song kind of lamenting, like, you know, he's this loser compared to her. But in the end, you know, she kind of like pities him and, you know, takes him home. So do you think, okay, so you think they do end up going home together at the end of it? Yeah, I do. I do think so. Uh, I mean, basically just the, the part, you know, uh, oh, so you think it's a fantasy? I don't think it's a fantasy. Yeah. I think that he's just like he's too like like caught up in his own head and too much of a like, you know, um like sad sack uh woe is me type to even like take her up on her offer. He's like, I can't I, I can't go with you. I'm a fu- I'm a fucking bookseller at the uh, screen okay. and an actress. Which seems like the kind of guy that uh, Don and Walt would, um, uh, you know, <laughs> be interested in. I, I wouldn't say sympathize with necessarily because I don't think that that's the point of most of these songs. Um, There's sort of the same thing uh, with Steely Dan music that there is with uh, Sorsese gangster movies, I think, in, in that some people think that, like, uh, they are condoning all of this behavior. A celebration, and, yeah. And illustrating how cool it is uh, by talking about it to the extent that they do, which I, I think I, I strongly disagree with in both counts. You know um, what I, I, I think is kind of maybe the case is that they're illustrating instances, I think both those, both Scorsese and, and Steely Dan, they illustrate what is and can be cool in otherwise extremely uncool, very fucked up certain <laughs> situations. Like they actually point out kind of like what is somehow undeniably beautiful within very depraved scenarios. <laughs> yeah. It's undeniably beautiful to be a cool guy named Dupree with a younger <laughs> cousin. <laughs> um, <laughs> I feel like people love to like call out Celia Dan for being creepy. You know, like, oh, they're so, I can't believe people listen to these, like, two creepy, like, middle-aged dudes. Like, it's so awful. It's like, it's kind of the, like, it's part of the 
joke and the fun and the like, it's finding romance in, in like these totally, um, it's like, yeah, like kind of trying to level with these characters that they invent and being like, well, what, what do these people see as romantic within this, uh, the situation I invented. It's like the opposite of inventing someone to be mad at. Right. It's, it's in- inventing someone to, um, yeah. Um, think, think is cool. Basically. Yeah. Inventing <laughs> someone to think is cool. Yeah. I, I have thought about though, you mentioned uh, Alex, people like, um, you know, kind of complain about them being creepy and like writing songs about creepy guys and creepy things. But I, I, I do feel like there has been like, like they have somehow escaped the worst. Um, like I, f- I feel like cancel culture should have come for them a little bit more heavily than it has. You know, for like somehow they they seem to have escaped a lot of the shit that like uh, honestly, like if as far as other people go, like it 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 gets them, but doesn't it gets other people, but doesn't get Steely Dan for some reason. Yeah, I mean, I think there's, um, I, you know, I think it's kind of like you were saying, like they're writing. The, the characters in these songs are, you know, they're kind of, um, they're creating characters and, and, you know, they're not necessarily endorsing the behavior, you know? Um, I don't think like, you know, real life Donald Fagan would take like a pro stance on like, you know, cousin Dupree. Like, I don't think he's pro. <laughs> We're talking so much about Dupree. <laughs> well, just <laughs> wait, just wait until we get halfway to it. Through, yeah. yeah. Um, but um so, so I think that's part of it. I think there's a, a sort of, you know, self-awareness to it and, uh, you know, a, a sort of irony. And frankly, a lot of music from the same era does not really have that same self-awareness. Um, and, exactly. And the, the people who made it have, you know, been found to have done things that, you know, you know, there's, there's less of that kind of ironic distance and it's a lot harder to, to kind of go back to it. So. Yeah, they are people who they are actually people who Steely Dan would write songs about. Right, 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 and that that is, <laughs> I think, part of what keeps them so evergreen. What keeps them feeling like something new and fresh for people to discover is that they they started out coming from this point of view of like uh, looking in on on the world. Coming, it's like very observational and. I think that keeps things interesting as far as like what people like to listen to today. It, it's um, it's not as interesting to listen to somebody who was in the moment 40 years ago. It's kind of more entertaining to read about like an outsider looking in or like describing a time and place. Right. As we look back. Uh, Two Against Nature. Title track. Really cool song. Very cool song. So it's somehow like the least Steely Danish of all the songs, even though it's the title track to me on here. Not in terms of the sound necessarily, but just like in terms of the um, the lyric and stuff. I can't really, I don't really see a whole lot of uh, depraved insanity in this one, but maybe I'm not uh, picking up on on uh, on some of the hints that are being dropped here. Do you think it's about being gay? <laughs> is, it, is that what you think? Um. No, I was asking if that's what you think. <laughs> I, I, that, that had not occurred to me. I don't think that that's what it's about, but I, just one. <laughs> Could you say it's a love story between two men? And, two men, you know, yeah, not, that's what I'm saying. Two uh, against nature, you know, yeah. we can't biologically have children, but that's not going to stop us from making love. Oh, yeah, maybe, maybe, that's, uh, maybe that is it. 
It was kind of a rare moment of like clever branding by uh, Steely Dan to have the the title song called Two Against Nature. And then like, it's the two guys on the cover, like standing <laughs> right. the test of time. Uh, yeah. With, with beautiful nature in the background, clearly just like a snapshot that one of them took while their shadows were being cast on what appears to be like the edge of a parking lot. Or something, <laughs> Presumably maybe. that is them. <laughs> yeah. It, it would be funny if it wasn't. The cover is really, like, the cover, I think, is, and the cover on Everything Must Go also, um, one of one of the things that there's a clear break from the previous, uh, the previous moves on their part, which everything with, from the original run had such strong and, like, daring and bright kind of, like, um, uh, design imagery and stuff, but the uh, Two Against Nature and Everything Must Go are a little pedestrian in terms of the cover, which, you know, doesn't necessarily matter. It's just sort of weird for them to come back with such like thrilling music, but a cover that just like doesn't suit it um, uh, or doesn't match it. Somehow. Do you like the cover, Alex? And also do you have like a favorite cover of theirs? I mean, they're the, the cover art for Steely Dan's albums are just like, there's almost no organizing like principle. It's, really principle. Random. it's so weird because they're, they're such, you know, the, um, they're so obsessed with, you know, all the, the finer points and, and the details. And, um, you know, I guess that was, you know, strictly musical because I feel like the two against nature cover in particular just feels so like half-assed and just like they found this <laughs> random picture of them like in these shadows. Um, in and terms like of the- a f- favorite, I don't, I, I kind of like the Royal scam cover just because of how awful it is. Like I find it amusing and like, it's, it's incredible. So cool. <laughs> it's, it's their highest concept one. And it's so um, like, what a choice to make to like, like clearly that was commissioned uh, uh, by them. Like they had someone make this. I actually I believe it was supposed to be the cover for another artist, like James Taylor or someone. I, I'm not, oh. I can't think of who it was. And then it's somehow there. Somebody was like, here, do you want this for your like, the royal scam this would work and they're like that is really incredible (laughs) Uh, thinking about like the point you just made about how meticulous you know famously this group is that they are almost comically uh, over serious about like every single solitary aspect of the recording process and yet when it comes to the record covers it feels like it was it picked out of a hat yeah, the, just like the the most junior level, um, the most recent hire at the label, uh, just kind of like got this tossed on their desk on a Friday afternoon and just like slapped it out and got it back in uh, before the end of the week, and then it went to press. I think it's a great. I I mean, I don't know. Maybe I I really like the cover actually. Um, for an album two- that comes out, yeah, in two thousand, it's a very. Two- it, it seems like uh, it was important to them to make it look contemporary and like I think it actually works well in that it looks like it could have come out yesterday it's not like something that I think is like likely to feel dated anytime soon particularly it's pretty minimal yeah I mean I I think one thing that uh that works for their album covers like going across their career is that it's it's sort of hard to pin down them like you see, you know, like a prog rock, you know, you see like the yes cover art and it's like, it looks like what that music sounds like, but like, there's such a sort of almost arbitrariness to like, like when taken together, all of the, uh, the artwork that it it adds to the, the sort of like weird mystique of Steely Dan and, and just being like, 
genre lists or just, you know. I feel like sometimes when a band has a, a very strong visual identity, it can be hard not to imagine the songs in, in terms of that. Whereas they, they have a, a way of just, like you said, yeah, these kind of feel ambiguous, kind of free your mind to uh, dwell on the, their mysterious quality. I don't know about you guys, but when I hear uh, everyone's gone to the movies, the first thing I think of just instinctively is a really close-up macro image of a grasshopper. That's just instinctively <laughs> connected in my mind. Yeah, the whole album is actually about grasshoppers. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's like The Secret Life of Plants, uh, but just about grasshoppers, basically. <laughs> it's a concept album. I guess that would be the cover that's like the least connected to the music. Like It's just because it's a Katie did, right? Like the ins- And there's oh, a Katie lie. Katie lie. Haha, funny. Katie lied. I didn't even think has absolutely that. nothing to do with anything on the actual record besides this like really like lame basic kind of pun. <laughs> to get back to the song Two Against Nature just briefly. Um <laughs> this song to me sounds like a spy movie um also. Like cool. it has a kind of th- that thing that sometimes happens uh where a song just ends up kind of sounding like it could be the soundtrack to like this could be like the heist in Ocean's Eleven or one of their sequels. Mm. Uh, just the instrumental, anyway. There's kind of like congas, right, and sort of like that yeah, impulsive. It's, it's probably the. Um, it's one of the closest things they've actually done to uh, like do it again in the, the later era, where it has this sort of almost like there's almost like a Latin jazzy rhythm to it that um, yeah. yeah. Isn't I don't know if they kind of is is it on the album anywhere else? I mean, it maybe uh, West of Hollywood, but yeah, West of Hollywood is the only other thing that kind yeah. of has that that kind of um, like toe tapping, you know, kind of energy to it. But even that sounds a little like that's that's still kind of its own thing. Yeah, that's that's a different sort of a different like genre of, sort of jazz influence on on uh, West yeah. of Hollywood. Love the hand claps on Two Against Nature. Those, uh, those like uh, they sound completely digital, just like uh, um, every like eighth note or fourth note or something. Chat, terrible chat, the dun, dun, chat. Yeah, exactly. Chat, chat. Yeah, it's um that, that might be an electronic drum sound. Uh, yeah, yeah, I'm sure that it is. Um, anyway, right, well, yeah, moving on, I guess. Moving on to uh, one of the absolute uh, highlights of um, being a cool guy and um, uh, doing sex crimes on the record, (laughs) Janie Runaway. Is it definitely that? Because I I guess it's a matter of the last verse, the the binkies. Yes. Is that what you're referring to? Like the the sugar shack in Pennsylvania? Yes. Or would that be a federal case? Sex crimes might be a little strong. Um, uh, sex um, uh, uh, infractions. What or, you're um, describing is being creepy. That's what you're trying to say. <laughs> They're doing something super sleazy, and and it's, uh, this is the drugs are probably song, involved. Maybe on the record, <laughs> yes. I, I mean, the impression that you get on this song is of a um, some kind of aging older New Yorker. Um, Praying upon or courting a um, runaway from another state, perhaps who he's uh, using his his charms and his takeout from Dean and Deluca to um, yes. woo. R.I.P. R. 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 Dean and Deluca. <laughs> yeah. 
It's hilarious that that's one of the few things that actually dates this album at this point. Who could have foreseen the demise of the great Dean and DeLuca empire? This really is a uh, a New York City album. Um, you know, they, they've they've returned to their New York roots after decamping for California here between the Strand and uh, all of the uh, escapades that may or may not be taking place on Long Island and Dean and DeLuca, yeah. Wonder Waif of Gramercy Park. They just... Uh, <laughs> Gramercy Park, it's, yeah. Dudes rocking on Manhattan. <laughs> I feel like starting with this album, they sort of shifted to being a more kind of New York based band. I think Don, uh, you know, lives uh, still to this day on the Upper West Side and they do the um, the Beacon residencies every year. So, yeah, I think with this with this album, they sort of shifted to um, to yeah, to, to from from California, from West Coast to East Coast. That's yeah. always been the tension between the group, it seems. And and that's something that's very relatable for me and I'm, I'm sure for Ian, because our existence, mine in particular, has always been extremely bi-coastal uh, for just be, because of fate. But it seems like they've always had records where they're in New York writing about Los Angeles or vice versa. And this seems to be, like you just alluded to, like... We're in New York. We're talking about that great city, New York, the best city in the world, Big Apple. Yeah, I, I mean, they were definitely a distinctly Los Angeles band by the end of their, um, you know, original run. Gaucho is such a Los Angeles record. Where was um, it recorded, though? Los Angeles. The whole they they were all. I think uh, Alex, you might know better, but I think like they they came out to Los Angeles to start being like session players, right? And um, then just ended up kind of. Um, recording a record with the other vocalist on um, Can't Buy a Thrill and then just kind of like set up shop out there and like, you know, rode the wave throughout the 70s. Gaucho was recorded in New York. Was it? Yeah, but it's about Los Angeles. That's what I'm wow. saying. Wow. It gets mixed up when you're by Coastal. I, I know that um, they were songwriters like in New York before they started Steely Dan as a, as a That's band. And then I think yeah, yeah. they, they moved to LA to be like, all right, we're going to try out this, you know, this rock band thing. And right. Uh, I think, you know, at least through Asia and I guess, I guess not gotcha, but I know at least through Asia, they were kind of based there and, you know, did a lot of the recording and that's sort of the sound of the band is sort of more West coast, um, you know, during that period. Yeah. Uh, anyways, Janie runaway. Um, maybe my favorite song on the record uh it's it's just it's so funny and such a such a just chill groove and vibe like i every line is like perfect um the by the possibly end, you yeah po- yeah once we get to possibly you who has a friend named melanie who's not afraid wow. to try new things who gets to spend her birthday in spain possibly you Jane, God, the possi- you, the possibly right there is so fucking it's perfect so it funny. makes me crack up every fucking who gets time. to spend gets to, is gets the, to that, it, that gets is kind of the key to the whole song like you you change that word and it's a completely different song. It really <laughs> like feels it, like, a, like you can't, I can't picture the narrator of this song not being like extremely disgusting to behold. <laughs> yeah. I can't believe we haven't touched on the uh, Sinatra role play yet because that's like oh, yeah. one well, of that, my that favorite parts. <laughs> the narrator is like an older man and that this is kind of like just such a sleaze bag, uh, enterprise The the thing of who gets to spend her birthday in Spain, possibly you 
<laughs> he holds himself with such self with such regard. Like you might, I might even invite you to Spain. You might get to come with me. He's like breathing heavily. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, uh, I think, I think with this one, Don's writing about a certain type of like New York guy who's um, who probably you know worships Sinatra, and like that's why he wrote this little this little part about you know you be the showgirl and I'll be Sinatra. This weird role play. Come come to old blue eyes. What, what was the year that, that he, did he say 59? 59, yeah. 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 Oh boy, who makes me feel like painting again? Who makes me feel like, or why do I feel like sailing again? It's just so, every line is so <laughs> fucking perfect. It's a record that poses the question, who makes the morning fabulous? <laughs> uh, honey, it's you, January. Possibly, possibly she gets to spend... She gets to spend her birthday in Spain. This is Sidney Pollock and Eyes Wide Shut. Victor Ziegler. I just watched that movie. It's so good. Yes. <laughs> yeah, this is him sort of like, he's talking to her like a dog. <laughs> like, yeah, talk about like, gaslighting. I mean, like the way that you would sort of go, like, who's a good boy? Who's a, who's a cute little girl who has no other place to live but in my penthouse right now? He's got to be uh, like 65 plus, I'm thinking. Like, with the 59, like just doing the math, like the yeah, fact that I mean, like he considers 59. Sinatra in 59 to be like the like sex God that he wants to, you know, emulate. Um. <laughs> yeah. Th- this is very different from Hey 19 where it's like, Hey 19, at least he's like sort of self-conscious. He's like, you know, we've got nothing in common. There's also like, like a, you know, I'm getting there's old. There's also like a 12 or 15 year age gap in age in Hey 19. I think it's like a 35 year old kind this of, this is a 35 year old age is, gap. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. If not more, if yeah. not more. Uh, uh, a, a true masterpiece of uh, just chill ass uh, jazz, blues, funk, and also uh, sexual deviancy. Do we have any memories about Dean and Deluca while we're here? <laughs> it was not that good. I think it went downhill at some point because I I remember um, I actually had a job that was right next to a Dean and Deluca, and sometimes I was just. Which Dean and DeLuca? Uh, it was the one, uh, let's see, it was on 56th Street between 6th and 7th. And I would occasionally, if I had not gotten coffee, that was just like the closest stop. And I would I would run over there and it was like, it kind of smelled bad. And like, there was nobody ever in there. I feel like it had sort of fallen on hard times compared to like when the this record way. came out, I feel like Dean and DeLuca was still this like prestigious, <laughs> like place that like, if you said, oh, I got this from Dean and DeLuca, people would be like, oh, like. Yeah, I mean, it kind of paved the way for Whole Foods and their like deli and uh, all those prestige or like the ones in the Hamptons that you know you can get like lobster salad for two hundred dollars a pound or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, I can't help again but think that Don is making fun of this guy for like getting <laughs> Dean and Deluca take. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think. Yeah. Again, that's, Don that's is coming out as like pro Dean and Deluca with that no, reference. No. He's just like, oh, this guy's a fucking Dean and Deluca fan, like. <laughs> <laughs> this is like this is how this is as good as it gets for him. It's like a little Dean and Deluca takeout and some Sinatra role play. Oh, the brisket from Dean <laughs> oh and Deluca is to die for. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus, uh, it's a masterpiece, uh, almost gothic. Uh, such a great vibe on this track. Extremely like just like smooth as a baby's bottom. I I like just close my eyes and cannot 
stop just nodding my head. Is it, is she that much, do we know for sure that she's significantly younger? I have to imagine that she's not like, yeah, I, th- I think it is. And, and just in keeping with the theme of the record, right. I would have to just like infer that yeah, that's I the guess, case. Yeah, that's um, it would be obvious, like maybe too obvious to just assume that he's literally kind of referencing like the hot topic goth aesthetic of that was still like very much uh, in vogue in 2000. Um, is it that gothic or is it gothic as in like Mary Shelley gothic? You get the feeling that it's the latter, but I can't help but think he's maybe trying to reference both. I think he's working through exactly like what the vibe that he gets from her through the song. Like, well, you know, hence the title almost Gothic. He's like, she's almost Gothic, but almost Gothic. there's all these other sort of like, like she, you know, he, he's working through it. Um, I, I, this song, I just really love specific lines. Um, there's, there's really one of my favorite lines on the whole album is I'm so excited. I can barely cope. I'm sizzling like an isotope. The sizzling like an isotope. Which is yeah. just so great. And then so also, good. uh, as if I'm already not blazed enough, she hits me with the cryptic stuff is another another yep. humdinger. Blazed <laughs> enough. A, a term that he couldn't have known would take on a, a certain <laughs> meaning later on. Sizzling like an isotope. This is very different from the than the protagonist of the last rec the last song. Um he's <laughs> A little more cerebral. Yeah, this is this is maybe a little bit more on the autobiographical side, I would venture to guess. Um Maybe this one, like an isotope. I, I, I don't. It doesn't know. sound like he's necessarily like making fun of some guy who's like, "Have you tried California Pizza Kitchen?" <laughs> Whatever. It's like it's so good. <laughs> we're gonna get that, and we're gonna go. We're gonna go to my cabana. He, he's he's being a little bit more maybe true to his um, intellectual yearning side. Hmm. That's just a guess, though. I don't know the man. Yeah, it's more like uh, it's, I mean, it's the the chords and just yeah, the the chords and and the um, the tone of the song is is almost more of like a love song, whereas like Janie Runaway, it has a sort of like creeping, like um, I don't know, it has a sort of creeping pace to it that this song doesn't have. This one is just like it's it's more uh, it's less sinister in in terms of how it sounds and. And also lyrically. Yeah. He literally hits you with the cryptic stuff on this one. You don't really get a picture of who this person is the same way that you do for the narrator of Janie Runaway or Gaslighting Abbey um, or um, uh, or not to, not to mention Dupree again, but uh, <laughs> certainly Dupree. We, we have a very firm picture of who that guy is. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, like this is such a perfect kind of like just smooth and easy listening and the backing vocals and stuff and the horns. I, I don't know. I, I, I can't like speak intelligently about it just because it's so kind of like, it feels like slipping into a warm bath or something mm. when, when you hear it, it's, it's speaking it's of uh, slipping into a warm bath. I mean, the opening line of this song is a humdinger. I'm, I'm working on gospel time these days. Gospel time. That's these a great days. way to start a song. Yeah. I recommend the uh, the uh, headphones for this one just to hear the um, the female like lead backing vocal with like the like you said the summer um, that's uh, yeah. I believe it's Carolyn Leonhart 
who also toured with them. And she, she always provides that sort of like breathy background vocal. Um, and I think she's on like almost all of this one and, and also everything must go. So she was kind of like a big part of this era of, of Dan. Um, don't know if she's still, I don't know what her status is, but like for the, you know, 2000 tour on through, you know, at least 2006 and maybe later she was, she was like a part of the Dan, the Dan touring band. Touring man. That's a, that's a great point that we haven't talked about. How, how many, I, I assume you've seen them at least once. Alex? Yeah. I mean, for you. So after I had that, you know, 2010 epiphany, I, I did want to see them, but it was like a little out of my price range at that time, just because, you know, they're, right. um, the audience they cater to tends to <laughs> be. They cater to the audience of Janie runaway narrators. Ex- yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't want to say that out loud, but yeah. <laughs> so I, and I was just like, I don't know, do I want to see them a lot? Like, do I want to be part of that? Um, so yeah, so it was both that and, and just like financial, but finally I saw them in uh, 2015. Um, and it was so, it was Walt, so great. Walt was still around. Yeah. That's the one time I was able to see them with Walt. Um, and then I've seen them at the Beacon uh, twice since then. So Hell I've yeah. seen them three times. Yeah. Uh, what kind of uh, what kind of sets have they played? Just is it all is it all the uh, greatest hits from the from the old school days, or any uh, deep cuts or covers, or you know newer stuff? Um, so they don't tend to play the newer stuff much. Um, right. When I saw them in Jersey, it was it was kind of amazing. Like they actually like they walked out, and it was like this twelve piece like kind of big band and they like just started playing like a jazz standard to warm up. And I was like, wow, okay, this is like legit. They're not just going to like, it's not just a bunch of old guys like running through the standards. Yeah. Paint by numbers. Um, but yeah, I mean, they played mostly the hits. They did play a uh, God whacker. Uh, Very cool. A song that I just heard today for the first time. <laughs> it's a good song. God whacker is great. It's one of the best of the late, late era for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then when they do the, so they do these beacon residencies where they play like, do you know the Beacon, Beacon Theater Blues. on the? Yeah, uh, I uh, I saw Bob, I saw Bob Dylan yeah. at the Beacon a couple years ago. Awesome, yeah. So the Beacon's great, and every I think it's every other year. I don't know exactly how they do it, but they they do these residencies where they play like eight or nine nights in a row, which is awesome because you can at least get tickets. Like tickets are available for at least you know one of them, one, um, yeah. and they do they do whole albums at these. Oh, they do the whole record thing. They do the whole record thing. So you can do like they have Asian night, they have Gaucho night. Um, so I've done two of those. I've seen so far uh, Countdown to Ecstasy in its entirety. Hell yeah. Wow. Um, and then they, they, so they do the album and then they play the greatest hits. Um, and then I, end of 2019. So it was actually like one of the very last shows I saw before the pandemic. I saw them do the Royal Scam, which was oh, just, I was just, it was Unbelievable. I mean, it was, I, I can't tell you how, how great it was. So like, even when the pandemic, you know, I, I had that beautiful recent memory to hold on to. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Was it, yeah. That was the last show you saw before everything shut down. I think it was, it might've been, the, it was one of the very last, like last or second to last. I mean, just to hear like the horn parts on caves of Altamira in that theater, like, you know, Incredible. that's, that's, uh, you know, and I can die now, you know, kind of moment. So. Seeing them play the Fez live, I would absolutely lose <laughs> my shit. Yeah, seeing the Fez on the Upper West Side, it's like <laughs> the surroundings. And <laughs> yeah, I was getting coffee um, like before work the other day, and um, I walked in and and there the Royal Scam was just playing like in its entirety in this coffee shop, 
And I was like, it was just me and like one other person. It was like nine thirty, and um, the the guy we were just all kind of standing there listening to it. it was very quiet. And then the the guy in front of me just asked the barista, like, "Is this uh, Silly Dan?" <laughs> and he's like, "Yeah." Actually, I think that the Royal Scam is one of their most interesting albums and probably their <laughs> creative oh, peak. Although a lot oh, of boy. people think that Asia or Gaucho might take oh, that my position. God. He just did, and he was just, did the meme out loud. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it was kind of beautiful because this dude was just like, damn, it's like really good. I, like, I haven't heard them in a long time. Sounds like and that I, barista needs to leave it to the professionals, the podcasters, to be doing that while he makes some lattes. Look, I, I envy him, you know, like being able to listen to whatever music he wants at his place of business. Anyway. Um, well, what do we got? Uh, what do we got next? We're moving into the uh, back the sequel half sequel to of- the Jack of Hearts. Yes. Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, this is uh, the same character we know and love from Lily, Rosemary, and the Jack of Hearts. Uh, he, now he's become the Jack of Speed. Uh, he's kind of aged uh, and turned to amphetamines in his later days because uh, uh, he's uh, so, so traumatized by his experiences with uh with big jim and the diamond mine right is this a song about somebody who used to do speed or does speed now i think both i think he got back into it that's my take on it is he was maybe into coke back in the 80s or when you know i'm just you know projecting my own idea of what this guy is but yeah i think he was he was back into it and then he or he was into it and now he's back into it yeah um you maybe got lucky for a few good years, but there's no way back from there to here. He's a one-way rider on the Shriek Express, and his new best friend is at the throttle, more or less. That's that's it right there. Might have been clean for a little while, but uh, his new best friend is uh, he's he's got he's got him back on back on the horse. There's a little bit of a political reference on here when he says um, he sort of he says the right that right wing hooey sure stunk up the joint. Love that line. He's gone. He, he delivers it. He walks through the old routine. So it's like, I just get the image of this guy, like who's like front, like he had this Reagan era spiel that he probably used to like break out at parties. And now he's like, again, I, I can't think, help but think of like the Hamptons and like a sort of Steve Bannon-esque guy who's just like going to some party for like older rich people. And he's like, just running through that sort of, you know, that sort he's of stuff. Right. Right. The right. Wing right. Wing, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the the this guy is the um, spiritual successor to the protagonist of Glamour Profession, um, but in two thousand, basically. So uh, it's not so glamorous. Um, it, he, he's not um, hanging out uh, at the parking lot of the Forum selling cocaine to Lakers anymore. He's uh, he's just kind of on his own in a pretty dark place trying to <laughs> trying to muddle through. Ian, are you saying that living hard has taken its toll? That's exactly what I'm saying, Evan. Although it does say he did he did get lucky for a few years. Yeah. So, so maybe 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 that was him <laughs> in Glamour yeah, Profession. Maybe you he caught got lucky him for a few good during years. that that the golden moment. <laughs> There's no way back from there to here. No more uh no more Mr. Chow's uh, no more Zeshwan dumplings at midnight. Wow. It's funny how I feel like um, it's really like Gaucho side A kind of laid the template for um, for this for this album and also kind of everything must go, I think. Right. Um, just the like the writing, these sort of like loser characters um, and, and just like the juxtaposition between like the sort of 
the smoothness and the the, the bounce and the, the kind of funky bounce to it that a lot of these songs have. Um, yeah. I think that's. I think that I, that really might be why they haven't had like you know too much backlash come their way. Um, it's Randy you, Newman syndrome. It's like you overcommit so hard to the awful character that it would be absurd for anybody to even criticize it without looking like they don't get what's happening here. Well, but and it goes down so smooth. Like it's, if this was abrasive sounding music about these freaks and sex pests and stuff, I think that would be a very different thing. But well, like, yeah, to the casual just, listener, you, you might not even notice that the lyrics are about, um, everything that people get mad about online, like 90% of their catalog is about grooming or whatever. Well, kind of the genius of it too, is there probably are guys who like listen to this album and see themselves in these characters. It's like the Sopranos and how people watch the Sopranos because they think Tony is cool or the characters in the (laughs) Sopranos watch the Godfather and watch Goodfellas rather and think that, those characters are cool. Think that they're cool. Yes. It's a sign of a great piece of artwork that it can be enjoyed um, on several levels like that, that it's got a, a base sort of um, depravity that is appealing, uh, or in this case, sort of just a general funkiness and groove that everyone likes. Um, there's a lot of uh, layers to this. There certainly yeah, the, are. The, the guy I kind of uh, picture who's on that level, who's just like seeing himself in these songs is the, the protagonist from um, uh, what a shame about me from uh, everything must go. Is, is, is that character? The is Sorry, that sorry, sorry. I, I got it wrong. Things I miss the most. I get those two songs confused where he's like, he's like the talk, the sex. And then he just starts listing like all <laughs> the, of the material, the, the, the Audi, <laughs> the house, on the, the Audi vineyard. TT. Yeah. The, the, uh, the, like the Eames chair. <laughs> In the house no on the one. Gulf Coast. The um, I was going to ask if you think that the character in um, What a Shame About Me is maybe uh, Deacon Blues narrator uh, years later. No, uh, Deacon Blues is... Too, De- Deacon he's, Blues he's passed too... away in an auto accident. <laughs> yeah, he clearly died behind the wheel. He died um, the instant that song ends. He's, that, yes. that song is like his DMT like death trip. Yeah, it's his brain hit um, exploding <laughs> into the next dimension. Uh, no, he's he's too cool of a guy. He's too smooth of an operator to ever become a strand cashier who can't uh, get it up for his old flame from NYU. I wonder if anybody <laughs> has ever thought about like in Death of a Salesman, uh, like having a crossover mashup of Death of a Salesman and Deacon Blues, where he's like, you know, like th- threatening to like drive his car over the side of the road. <laughs> That, that it, it sounds like uh, sounds like a project you should put on. <laughs> that's that's gonna be a one man show that I'll do. Fantastic! The Broadway's back, folks. Catch Evan doing the Deacon Blues. Deacon Blues. <laughs> yeah, one man show. That would Definitely. actually be a good one man show. Is someone acting out all of the Steely Dan characters? <laughs> oh, it really would be. Honestly, you're, like you could do like you know ten minute increments for each song. That's an incredible idea. It's just like the same guy throughout. I would I would love to see a one act <laughs> like a one act short of everything you did, um, and get um, get that argument going, and then have someone crank up the Eagles at some point. A part of Gaucho where he's like actually yelling. <laughs> he's like, "What do you think I'm yelling for?" Uh, uh, well, we've uh, I think we've 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 danced around it long enough. Uh, 
And the next one is uh, is none other. You, me, and Dupree. You, me, and cousin Dupree. <laughs> yes. Which uh, maybe you can fill our uh, fill our listeners in on this delightful anecdote that well, you discovered. I, I wonder, today, Alex, do you know about the uh, actual interaction that happened? Apparently, allegedly, with Mister Owen. Is this Wilson? with Owen Wilson? Yeah. I've heard of. I, let, you should uh, you should tell it because well, I'll I'll screw it up. I'm sure. So apparently, what what happened was in uh, July 2006. We're coming up on the anniversary of this, the 15 year anniversary. <laughs> Great moments in rock and roll history. <laughs> Steely Dan posted a humorous letter on their website saying that the title of Owen Wilson's film "You, Me, and Dupree," which had uh, since I guess just come out, was stolen from their song. The film is about a house guest who overstays his welcome. The song's title is a slacker who is sleeping on his aunt's couch. Owen Wilson defended himself in similarly deadpan comic fashion, stating, I've never heard the song called Cousin Dupree, and I don't even know who this gentleman, Mr. Steely Dan, is. I hope this helps to clear things up and I can get back to concentrating on my new movie, Hey 19. (laughs) Clearly he's... A fan. I wish I could have said that in his voice. It's good-natured fun from two uh, cool guys. I don't even know who this Steely Dan guy is. That's uh, too much David Lynch. Everything I do is too much David Lynch. (laughs) Yeah, it all goes David Lynch. I don't even know who this Steely Dan guy is. (laughs) David Uh, Lynch just talks like Owen Wilson, but like exaggerated a little more. Yeah. Wow! <laughs> I guess you're right. Um, do you like this song, Ian and Alex? I like it because it is groovy, and I love the whistling, and I also think it's cool to uh, do incest <laughs> with your cousin um, when you're just hanging out at home on your aunt's couch. I didn't ask you if that's what you thought. I just asked if you liked it, but thank oh, you for so, sharing well, I'm that. sorry. I was explaining why I liked it. I might be seeing too much of myself in this one. Um, one of the best details of this is that he's in a uh, the type of band that the character of Dupree um, clarifies that he's keyboard was man in a rock and ska band. Rock and ska band. <laughs> so I was good. I was listening to this uh, this one um, ahead ahead of this, and um, I think that line from keyboard man in a rock and ska band to Holland boss crude in the big rigs. <laughs> and I had this thought, like, this is why people on Twitter love Steely Dan because this has that sort of like it's like a drill tweet. Exactly. Yeah. Like the the Holland Boss crude in the big rigs, <laughs> and, and also the Rock and Ska band. Like those are like that whole that like couple right there is just like it's it's basically yeah. a drill tweet. Yeah, it's a shit post. <laughs> the character that like you you learn everything you need to know about him when he says that he once played keyboard on a rock in a Rock and Ska band, and that now he has found himself like back <laughs> on his aunt's futon. Um, and then, of course, just the uh, the abruptness of uh, we used to play when we were three. How about a kiss for your cousin Dupree? <laughs> what do rhymes do rhymes get any more perfect? You've grown up like a rose. Is that the lyric? Honey, how you've grown like a rose. Yeah, 
Well, we used to play when we were three. How about a kiss for your cousin Dupree? The character is, at this point, the record is just saying like, all right, let's just go for the jugular in terms of like the characters that we do. <laughs> like this, <laughs> this character isn't even like, you know, uh, sort of, it's not a subtle uh, type of caricature. This is just like the most abject loser in the world. Um, I love that he has an attempt at poetry and saying like, you've grown up like a rose. And then naturally just within two seconds is like, we kiss me, please. My come, here, come here, honey. I, I also love that he's, he's like kind of creepily hanging out in, in and around the area where uh, Janine ha- has a date over and he sees them like kiss or something. And then he gets horny based off of that. It's just like the absolute grossest, most fucking depraved thing you can imagine. <laughs> One of my favorite things in the whole record happens in this song, which is where uh, Donald Fagan goes, ooh, ah, ooh, ooh, ee. <laughs> How about a kiss for your cousin Dupree? <laughs> yeah, I mean, they really, he really saved like his, um, like his most accessible sort of like upbeat pop song for this probably is the, the lead single of the record. Yeah. It's probably one of their most famous songs. Like it's, it's the one that I've, I've seen it in karaoke books. Um, it was the lead single. Really? It, yeah. Really? Who's I singing this it. at karaoke? I Damn. mean, it's, I'm sure it's happened at some point. When, when I go back to the, the karaoke <laughs> bar, I know what I'm, I know my first song up there. <laughs> uh, uh, also, Grammy winner. Uh, the song won the award for best pop performance by a duo or group with vocal. It's we just- haven't even touched upon the big Grammy win, which maybe we yes. can just get at, at the very end. But um, I think that we've probably covered the the most of what you can talk about with, with Cousin Dupree. Um, I watched this feature at a live performance from 2000 around the time promoting the record, which is great. And, um, in it, uh, before the song or after, I believe Donald Fagan says something like, you know, it's like a classic country song. <laughs> like that, that sort of <laughs> classic country type of music, you know, of like, you know, being a guy who's like creeping on a, on a cousin. I think that's part of the reason that you, that your Twitter account has taken off. So, so to the extent that it has, Alex is just cause like uh, he, he came 30 years too early for it, but I feel like Don would be just a fantastic poster on Twitter <laughs> if he, if he could stomach actually, you know, yeah, getting yeah. onto it. Yeah. Him and Walt were kind of the, the OG shit posters in a way. Yeah. Like RIP Walt, by the way, I, I didn't yeah. even know in, that he passed away. A couple years ago, yeah, three yeah. years ago. I think. It was in uh, yeah. It was my sister actually got married the day he died. So I like I saw the news and I like I had no time to process it. It was like there's like so much going on. Um, but yeah, it was it was a huge bummer. Obviously, that's a real um, whiplash of a day. Yeah. Well, uh, we can uh, we can mosey along here. Coming in towards the end, negative girl. Uh, back to the chill vibes on this one. Uh, again, a little more uh, obtuse, I would say. This one, uh, I, I'm still, I still kind of 
find myself wondering exactly what's going on here. It sounds like some sort of uh, a woman who's sort of uh, at her wit's end in New York. Uh, a woman you know, under the influence. Woman under the influence, exactly. Um, and, you know, kind of having a hard time in general. Um, but uh, we're not, uh, you know, uh, we're not getting too much insight into this narrator uh, the way that we are on some of the other ones. She's zooming on a couch somewhere or high or home. I'm not supposed to call her there. Clearly there's another illicit sort of relationship, like a, some kind of affair. We can I think just she might have a drug problem. That, that's sort of my... Zooming on a couch seems to imply right. that, yeah. The zooming and her skin like milk, like she's pale, you know? Yeah. Um, and, and also the... Um, I know she's ill, I'm cruising for a spill. Yeah, some cash, a key, this guy she has to see, a doctor friend uptown, and maybe she gets I to I need me to be in the down. heat of her cold white flame. Another negative girl at the edge of the frame, deliciously toxic, the original classic thing, more of the same. Honestly, this is like, this is maybe the grossest and darkest of all of these. In that he's Pretty like heavy. he's fetishizing this like uh, absolutely um, pitiable drug-addled, uh, presumably young woman. Um, but of course, it's a character. This is a it's, it's satire. Yeah, I don't, I don't, <laughs> don't, don't pull the old van van move on this one. <laughs> Once again, though, just the absolute, one of the absolute, like, smoothest, vibiest kind of tracks on the record. Um, incredible backing vocals, uh, just, like, fantastic percussion. It, it's like, I just, I, I love it. Oh, God, the ending is very chilling, actually. I think that she might be dead at the end of this song. <laughs> Staggering out into the burn of the brain-dead dawn to arrive in time to find her gone, she's on the train to somewhere up. Does that not sound like she finally overdosed and he, like, walks in and sees her dead? Definitely sounds like it could be. And then there's that weird, like, Ugh. kind of arpeggiated guitar riff at the end also that, like, kind of has a, like, a uns- like unsettling kind of feel. It really is sort of like, you know, kind of... Well, it gives you the creeps a little bit. Not- yeah, this song does not really have the. Uh, it's isn't it? It's kind of minor key. Like it, it the, here the music kind of mar- is married to the tones of the song a little more. Where totally, um, you're supposed to kind of be feeling a little bit icky. I think when you're listening to it, this is like yeah. reading Peter Sotos. This is fucked up. <laughs> Uh, well, it, I'm, I'm, you know, I, it, I'm sorry to, to bring you down after having such a good time hearing about Cousin <laughs> Dupree with this one. <laughs> Let's move on. Uh, well, that uh, we, we come right back up here uh, at the end with maybe the grooviest song on the record. Uh, certainly the, um, I guess probably the fastest paced, maybe the most like, I want to almost say the most like classic Steely Dan sounding song on the album, West of Hollywood. Um, what is West of Hollywood? West Hollywood. Well, yeah, but that's still technically <laughs> Hollywood, right? Is this song just about West Hollywood? <laughs> I, your guess is as good as mine, brother. This song is about the uh, standard WeHo RIP. Yes, another uh, institution gone too soon. 
I don't know if it was even around in 2000 though. Was it? I think it was because it was. Uh, it it was. It made an appearance in Ocean's 12 or Ocean's oh, 11 or something. Okay, then yeah, right yeah, must have been. Sad. What is that? Uh, sorry, should I know what that is? The standard, uh, you know, like the standard hotels. Uh, there's one uh, in the oh, okay. East Village, and there's one in uh, the standard High Line. There was one in um, West Hollywood that was kind of like for uh, for a lot of people uh, a sort of like notable location on Sunset Boulevard. Um, I stayed there a number of times, and uh, it's a uh, Mr. Fancy. I mean, uh, it was kind of gross. Like it, the hallways sort of had like a mildewy quality, but um, great pool. R.I.P. Uh, West of Hollywood by Steely Dan. <laughs> they kind of go for the uh, the jugular on this one with that crazy sex at the end. Yeah. Like I feel like it almost sends you out. Like you've endured like all these, you know, the disparate tales of like gross old East Coast men, and then they they hit you at the end with this like glorious kind of more West coast jazzy. Exactly. Like propulsive. And then like the, the sax playing is actually more kind of out there. I feel like then like, it's not just sort of a straightforward solo. Like it's like, he gets a little crazy with it for a while and it's a long song. Yeah. Um, yeah this, this is the closest thing to like glamor profession or time out of mind or something uh, on yeah. this record to me, at least in terms of sound, something that's just like an absolute, just like stone cold stunner in terms of the music. Um, I don't really, I, I don't know that I really have a good picture of what's going on, on, uh, the actual lyric here. Uh, he name drops Culver city, which is very funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, West of Hollywood that I think that this song is actually not about, um, being in Hollywood at all. It's about being like more, in Culver City and um, Sautel, you're you're getting Japanese food in that area. I bet Donald likes sushi. I've always thought that. Oh no! I, like I can just see him like that's his like go to. You know, absolutely. Seems like a guy who enjoys a nice sake. Also, yeah, he's a sake guy, <laughs> like wow. hot sake guy. Whoa. <laughs> Not a Dean and DeLuca guy. I think we can. No, I, I, I think that we can assume <laughs> that he looks down his nose upon Dean and DeLuca. Do you think that, uh, I don't know, maybe we should bring up the pitchfork.com in the year 2000. Oh, I totally forgot about that. Mm. The review that they gave this album was <laughs> um, a, like a one. One of the lowest grades they've one ever point, given to anything. What was it? It was a, uh, yeah, I think I did a post about it because it's very important what the point was. You know, one point. <laughs> one point six. Oh, oh, fuck you. What? Just absolute sickos. One point six. That's, uh, that's, that's beyond being, that's trolling. That's nothing. But this was a different era of Pitchfork where like. Oh, very different. It, this is one know, of those ones where when you look at it. It says, you know, there's no like clean little blurb about the record. Right. It just is like the first sentence and then dot, dot, dot. Cause they, that was before they knew to um, make a marketable tiny soundbite for the people who don't read the article. Yeah. And I feel like the, like the barrier to like become a writer at Pitchfork at that time, like it wasn't like a Condé Nast, you know, affiliated, you know, yeah, exactly. company or anything. It was just like. It was just some guy who was just, just like, blogs. you know, yeah. I hate Steely Dan. I'm going to like rip on their new, like, it's so, you know, pristine sounding. It's a bunch of boomers getting together and like spending way too much time in the studio. You know, that's, 
that, that I mean, that was very much a uh, a stance on Steely. Like Steely Dan was not considered cool, you know, um, the way they are now at that time, for sure. Right. I mean, it was like yes, they won the Grammy album of the year, and like I'm, against, you know, and- I should say. <laughs> Which is probably germane to this point and why Pitchfork yeah. was so mad. Um, they beat out Kid A, Radiohead, yes. for best for album of the year. Which is um, the kind of stunning upset that actually, in retrospect, I think is um, cool and good. Yes, I strongly agree. I, I mean, I certainly know that I went through my Radiohead phase as a high schooler, just like I'm sure. I, I don't think you ever went through a Radiohead phase, Evan. I uh, didn't, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but Alex, I assume you went through some sort of Radiohead phase at some point? I did, yeah. I mean, I I actually remember, I mean, I didn't know that much about Radiohead when Kid A came out. Like, I think that's when I first heard of them. But I remember, I, I feel like when it came out, people like weren't quite sure what to make of it. Like, I don't think it was immediately lauded as like a masterpiece or anything, um, right. but I don't know. It's, it's, it's hard to say. Like uh, the, I, I think Steely Dan winning it was just like, people are like, that, like those old guy, like it was still sort of a, like what um, I, I sort of view it two ways. Like um, one that Grammy voters were just older and probably like had, you know, a, a lifelong love of Steely Dan and were just yeah. happy that there was a new album and also it, it was like in the way that the Oscars sometimes give the award to like actors who have been nominated like a bunch of times, then they'll finally just be like, okay, you've like earned it. Like right, Donald like a lifetime achievement. Exactly. Yeah. Don, so Donald um, Asia was nominated. Gaucho was nominated. And then two Donald solo albums are nominated for album of the year and he never won. So uh, like it could have been one of those where it's like, all right, it's the fifth time. You know, we're not really into this new shit like Radiohead Kid A. I don't get it with the electronic like weirdness, you know. With the bleeps and bloops. We want (laughs) that real music. (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, it was up against Kid A, uh, Midnight Vultures, Beck, uh, Marshall Mathers, LP. Oh, wow. And some random Paul Simon record from 2000. Wait, which random? What's it called? You're the one. Oh, I don't know that one. Yeah. Uh, anyways, uh, all of which uh, was to say, uh, you know, I went through my Radiohead phase, and Lord knows I have loved and still do love Kid A. But in terms of a record that I would want to listen to, like today in 2021, I would throw Two Against Nature down on the turntable a <laughs> hundred times out of a hundred compared to Kid A. Wow, that's that's strong. You know, a lot of people would say you're crazy for saying that. Well, I'm uh, not me, but I know that a lot of people would. I'm proud. I'm proud to to live in this uh, to live in this body and I mean, in this, this family. By the way, this song has just been playing in my headphones as we've been talking, <laughs> and it's still going. It's just like really that wild. Goes that sax? It goes for like it's it's like two straight minutes or something. It's wild. Two or three minutes. Yeah, they're at the end. Yeah, yeah, it three like minutes they, maybe. Yeah, because they don't have any sort of like insane breakdown like you have on Asia or um, uh, Deacon Blues or something on this on this record until you get to this point. So it seems like they just couldn't help themselves but to to throw one in here at the very last minute. Is this the longest song in the Dan catalog? Maybe. Yeah, Jeez, I think it might be eight twenty one. Yeah, I think it's the longest song that they ever really like. I'm I'm trying to 
Yeah, because glamour professions like just under seven, mm-hmm. right? And then I think Asia and um, Asia and Deacon are over seven, but are I, over I seven, but not that, eight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right. Damn. Wow. And I and I think that sax solo is kind of like the most out there they ever got from like where they're doing like a guy is just you know doing a sort of jazz, almost free, not free jazz, but you know, certainly like harder bop sort of style. Um, just like yeah. Soloing, so yeah, it doesn't have yeah, it doesn't have that smooth like like perfect kind of like uh, propulsive kind of sound that a lot of the guitar solos do, um, uh, you know that some of the guitar solos do from uh, from the earlier records. That it, it yeah, they really just kind of like let him rip at the end, which is sort of atypical for them. And that's um, how this, the track goes yeah. out on that uh, long ass solo. It just sort yeah, of just um, melts away. It gives you kind of a pure expression, and I also like. Um, that you end the record, a record that's been so far very East Coast with a sort of West Coast reverie that sort of just uh, melts into the uh, into the horizon with that solo. I think it's kind of a cool way to end this record. No argument for me there. Yeah, there, there's nothing really like this on um, Everything Must Go either. That one's kind of like more straightforward, I guess. Um, yeah. And there's no West of Hollywood, at least, where they just like have a huge sax solo. It ends, I think it ends with the title track, right? The last song. Yeah. Um, Which a good song. Yeah. And it's a one good, of the best yeah, on it's, that it's one. It's a swan yeah. song, really. It's their swan song, you know, and a great title for a swan song of a group. Everything must it, go. Literally. There, there are huge, um, yeah, it is. And there are huge, uh, everything must go stands out there. Let me tell you, like there are people who actually think it's better than two against nature. You know, I think uh, I was listening to it today though. I, 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 wanted, I, go that I want to address that because <laughs> yeah. I think that it actually has, um, there's totally, I think a case to be made just in terms mm-hmm. of somebody's personal taste, that record yeah. seems to be so much more concise and concerned with being clear and, um, pretty, uh, Spartan in terms of like the the sonics and just the the song structure and um, this record I think is kind of the uh, they work well as a double feature but maybe maybe it would be better to hear uh, everything must go and then close out with uh, with this record um, if you're going to listen to the last two in that in an in a sequence yeah. This is definitely a more exciting record to me, at least. Between those two albums, I think a good um, sort of you get two poles of like what what they can do. Where you you don't have a West of Hollywood on that album, but you get stuff that approaches a little bit more of like the the pop sensibility that they can totally just nail when they want to. Yeah, yeah and apparently, so like. Two Against Nature was like it took a long time to like I they I know that they were performing Jack of Speed live as early as '96. Wow! So I think those songs had been kicking around, I, and I believe they went into the studio in uh, in '97 to start recording Two Against Nature. So it took like it was like one of those. I mean, it wasn't comparable to uh, to Gaucho, but it was a long it was a long studio. It was a long time in the studio. In that feature at. Um from 2000, like when it came out, yeah. there's like these little interview segments and there's a part where they said like, you know, why did it take you so long to do this album? Like it took you 19 years. And Fagan says, um, well, uh, for the first 17 and a half years, we weren't doing much. We were just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah. Um, I mean, and, and I like it. I like the like two against nature feels more sort of like spiritually connected to Gaucho. So like Gaucho happened and then they took this huge break, but then two against nature, I think really builds on that in terms of like the, the style of songwriting, especially on the first three songs of Gaucho. Um, and then everything must go. I feel like was just kind of a victory lap. Like two against nature did well, they had a reunion. People were like really wanting them to do another album and, and they did. So yeah, it seemed like, yeah, exactly. Just kind of a low stakes, like, you know, yeah. they had a couple songs kicking around. They had some studio time, might as well just bang it out and, you know, have another three songs to pad out the set lists with, you know, at, in that era of, uh, of touring. Yeah. They didn't, apparently they didn't like labor as much with the, you know, their usual, like, like obsessive, you know, having session musicians play the same parts like over and over again. Like apparently they, they, it was like a much breezier and, and shorter recording session. So that kind of makes sense, yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that uh, I think that that does it for us here on uh, Two Against Nature, which brings us to everyone's uh, favorite moment uh, of the podcast. Alex, I don't know uh, if you are familiar with the the Jokerman um, uh, evaluation schema. Um, it's not it's not quite as detailed as uh, as the Pitchfork one hundred point scale. Uh, you get you get three options to choose: okay. one star two stars or three stars for the record. Um, and no half stars. You can give it zero if you're really pissed, but I, I, you know, I don't think you're going to give I doubt two that against nature zero. Happen, yeah. So, so is it a one, is it a two or is it a three for you? Just gut, well, in the gut in, feeling, you know, in the, well, three for all of music in the context of, of, uh, of a Steely Dan record, I might want to save the three for like, you know, Asian gaucho. Right. Um, so I'll go with two for that, for, just for that reason. Yeah, it's, I, I love it. I think it's a great album. It doesn't quite hit the like insane highs that you know, uh, like Royal Scam through Gaucho is like my my favorite run of the of the Dan. Yeah. Um, but it's it's not. It's definitely two stars solid. Yeah, not far off there, Evan. I I agree, and this is actually what we did. <laughs> we also gave the last uh, record that was our curveball, sort of our. Um, non-Bob uh, episode, I, I gave the Van record two stars and so did Ian. And I think that that's in a way a little bit um, of a statement in itself because I think that would be crazy to give this like a low score. This is a really good record that has so much to offer and only reveals more and more interesting layers and details as you um, spend some time with it and think about I agree. I think it would be crazy to give this a low score, which is why I'm going to give it three stars. There we go. Ring well, the bell. Here, here's the, here's a, an interesting question. Would you, um, would you rank or would you argue that this album is better than any of the first seven? So like any, do you think it's a better album than any of the albums from like the original, you know, can't buy a thrill through Gaucho? Because that's that would be an that's an interesting question. I think. That's an it's interesting like, one. I think it's better than Pretzel Logic from only having a cursory Ooh. listen to that record. That one feels a little led into me. Uh, whereas this record, I feel like paradoxically has a little bit more youthful verve and and vigor than an album which came out uh, year you know decades before, which I feel like is a little bit weighed down by a certain kind of. Um, 
I don't know. It feels that one's a little proggy to me in a way that I don't even love that much. You might need to spend a little more time with Pretzel Logic because Ricky into Night by Night, into any major dude, into Barrytown is a fucking legendary top, like first four. (laughs) Look, I was listening to it for the first time while I was busy, like shelling uh, fava beans for like two hours. So I wasn't paying (laughs) that close of attention. I guess if Ricky is on there and, Damn, major dude. Okay, all right. Fuck it. Well, well, no, Evan. I think you I don't make know. A point. Maybe did I make a point? Because that was my first impression. I, I, just, like, I passively listening to that. I record. do. I I actually agree with you. I think two against nature wow. is stronger than. Pistol, I, I think. think two against nature has like a little <laughs> bit more. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like there's actually kind of maybe it's just contextual, but there's a bit more drama to it because you know that they're older now. So like when they make these little like funny and smirking and like weird songs it it has like that added um oomph to it where you're not as surprised by like some young guys on top of their game doing something like that it feels a little bit more like okay yeah i know you can't you can flex and so i'm seeing you flex it's cool to see them a little bit more seasoned and, and like still well, yeah, relentlessly that's the irony, coming right? back to it's, that it's well their- their songwriting is actually more mature, even though it's like the actual content of the <laughs> album. Like, it's their like weirdly like late era mature, like more subdued. Like there aren't like the it doesn't have like the pop kind of highs that a lot of the they're like it doesn't have a mild school, you know, or um or like a Ricky or um no, but it di- in, any in major terms of dude, the but, like um, the li- the the lyrics yeah. and the themes, yeah, exactly. it's, it's pretty daring. Yeah, like, it's very daring and and yeah, I, I think it. Yeah, I mean, it builds on, like, I think Gaucho was like, they, they hit a certain peak in terms of just like what they were trying to achieve. And I think Two Against Nature, in a way, kind of builds on that. Whereas I think Pretzel Logic, they were still coming into their own um, in terms of like, w- like what they were. There's a lot of different styles on Pretzel Logic. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a little bit uneven. The B side, I'm not crazy about some yeah, of the, the songs second, on it. The second side definitely slows yeah. down. It starts off amazingly. Like that, those first three are so good. Any major dude is like such a highlight in their discography. But like, I don't know, some of the B side, I'm I'm not hugely in love with. But, you know, it's still it's still classic Aristotle Dan though. So you know, I can't help but love it. Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd probably throw this somewhere kind of in the middle of the entire kind of canon of theirs. Definitely below Gaucho Asia's Royal Scam, um, but um, probably above at least Can't Buy a Thrill and um, Countdown to Ecstasy. And maybe even Katie Lied, to be honest. Katie Lied uh, is, has a couple highlights, Bad Sneakers, obviously, uh, Dr. Wu. Um, Black Friday, but like, I don't know, the re- the rest of it is also a little kind of like sticky for me. Um, maybe the same way that pretzel logic is for, for you guys. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think this slots in right, right there in the middle, which for a comeback record after 20 years off is fucking amazing. Well, I don't have much else to add. I, I think. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Alex. Uh, can you uh, repeat, uh, let all the folks out there uh, in Jokerman Nation know uh, where, where we can follow along uh, with you on Twitter? Of course, yes. And uh, that would be at Bad Dan Takes. There you go. It's good Dan Takes now. It's good it Steely is. Dan Takes, but, but I, the handle I kept is the handle. Still I'll never change it. Bad Dan <laughs> Takes, at Bad Dan Takes. Wonderful. Um, awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yes, thank uh, you, and, Alex. Uh, this was a delight. 
this was this was awesome. Uh, no, it, was, it was really fun. Uh, thank you guys. You guys are really good at this. This was uh, <laughs> this is a huge pleasure for me. Well, I love like <laughs> the, doing the account is just like you know doing the little tweets. It's not it's not the same as you know airing it out you know in person. So we are we are uh, <laughs> well. You're a natural. Oh, thanks. Yeah, you 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 are uh, a valued member of the podcasting community now, and a part of the Jokerman extended universe. I love it. Exactly. Thank you so much. I'm uh, I'm honored. Well, until next time. Joker Dan. Let's grab some takeout from Dean and DeLuca. A high gulping wine. You be the sugar. I'll be Sinatra. Way back in 59. Sweetness and real. In long black gloves Come to a blue eyes Tell me who you love Who makes the traffic interesting Rescues a dreary Sunday Who makes me feel like painting again Honey, it's you, Jane, run away